Good morning, everybody. Just there's a couple of seats up. You know, you can come on and find them anyway. I'm glad you guys are here. Let's begin by praying together. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you for this day. We have an opportunity to gather together as family and most importantly to worship your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that you gave him to us. We thank you that we didn't deserve it. We thank you that not only did he come to earth in the form of being the God-man, but he also went to the cross and died for our sins. And we thank you, Father, that you raised him from the dead, vindicating him and indicating that whoever believes in him won't perish, but will have eternal life. Father, today we ask for the guidance and direction of the Holy Spirit. We also ask, Father, as we consider and meditate on the words today, that the Holy Spirit would enliven that and allow us to understand it because of the power that he has and the opportunity that we have to have access to things that were mysteries until you revealed them. We pray for our country today. Most importantly, too, we pray for our fellow believers, both here in this country and around the world, especially those of our congregation. We pray that whatever situations or difficulties you're going through, Father, that they would understand that you're there for them and that they would be able to grow even in those bad experiences. We ask it all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Please stand and worship with us. Good morning again, everybody. This morning, before we begin with with the message in 1 Timothy, I want to let you know about Grace Bible Church, Pakistan. And uh, this is a great ministry in, um, in Pakistan. And they have a general assembly, which is growing. Then they also have ministries to orphans, to children, and in the, sur- in the surrounding villages. And we're um, privileged to know uh, Fazil Karijan, who are, are running that ministry. They This year, as, as they have in the past, I think this is the 11th year they're going to do this. They are going to um, put together Christmas, par- Christmas care packages for the young people. Um, clothing, food. Um, for the little ones, crayons and, and illustrations and so forth. And they asked for us to help. And we've been helping. And this year, once again, they're trying to raise $12,000. And they do that so that they can uh, provide these student packages to their academy students. And that's mostly, that's more clothing, more substantial clothing. And then as well as the village packages, mostly for younger kids. And uh, that's for $7 each. And... Um, they would appreciate whatever, whatever we can provide for them. The way we work here is that um, you provide the um, donation to the church, and then we package it together and send it on um, to, to the folks there at Pakistan. And so we would just ask you to pray about that. You're always very generous, and we just appreciate that for a very, very uh, terrific uh, ministry there in Pakistan. Once again, I want to remind everybody that we do have a homeless ministry now. With uh, Bud and Kim Dungan, they're always in, in need particularly of financial support because they are um, coming across needs that homeless people have and they want to fulfill them right away. But that does require financial resources. They have some of their own. But we're called to support and support, participate by supporting these different ministries, whether it's the homeless ministry in our neighborhoods, whether it's ministries overseas to the Jewish people, the different ministries that we have the privilege to be associated with, um, chosen, chosen people ministries and the Jewish outreach. And our job, remember the whole church's job is to spread the gospel in the neighborhood and this country and around the world. Some do that directly because that's their calling. They sacrifice and they either go to those other countries or they work hard in this country to reach out to people in need, homeless people, people in prison and so forth. For the rest of us, our job is to support them in prayer, when they visit, and also, importantly, support them financially. It's really important, and that's, that's our contribution, literally, to that effort that the church is making to witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, this morning we are going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Starting in verse 14. 1 Timothy 3.14. 1 Timothy 3.14. We're picking up where we left off last week. We do that a lot, actually. We do that every week. We, wherever we were last week, we pick it up from there and move forward. I do encourage every one of you to keep reading the, the letter of Timothy. It's amazing how uh, I do that. And I, I try to practice what I preach and I read it. And I start to see even more meaning in what I'm presently studying because of all the rest of the letter. 
Um, every part of the letter is enriched by the whole letter. And so from time to time, you just want to read it from start to finish. All right, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. The title of today's message, Great is the Mystery of Godliness. Great is the Mystery of Godliness. But we'll begin in verse 14. I'm writing these things to you, Paul writing to Timothy, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I'm delayed, I write, so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He, Christ, who was revealed in the flesh, was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Great is that mystery of godliness. Well, here as chapter 3 ends, we're coming to the most exalted expression about the wonders of the person of Christ. That's what we have in this hymn this morning. It's no accident that this hymn appears right where it is, right after Paul summarizes his instructions for Timothy. He's been given instructions to Timothy from the start. We've seen that. Instructions about what to do about the false teachers. Instructions about how the church, how the men and the women, the deacons and the elders and the women serving, how to conduct themselves. And so he's been giving, he will once again go back to teaching Paul teaching Timothy about how to handle the issues in the church. But right here, he stops and he just takes stock of what he's been saying and then ties it into the person of Jesus Christ. So it's no accident that this hymn appears here pretty much right in the middle of the letter of 1 Timothy. Um, And here he also summarizes really what he's doing. He says, I write so that you will know, Timothy needs to know these things, how one, how each person in the congregation, ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the church. He's raising, as it were, the profile of the church, or rather, as we saw in 1 Corinthians, helping them to discern the truth about this body of believers they're with. And so that's what he says to try to build up to what he's going to say about the Lord Jesus Christ. He first wants them to understand the importance and they're, 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 they're really their duty to, to revere and protect the household of God, the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Our passage today is the high point of the entire letter. This, it's been practical until now, and now it gives way to the exalted in Jesus Christ. Then it comes back to practical issues once again. Again, verse 14, I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write to you so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. As we can see in verse 14, Paul really, really wants to come to Timothy as soon as he possibly can. And there's a reason for that. On the other hand, he's wise enough and he's had enough experience. Remember, this is really, really close to the end of his life here. Close to the end of his ministry. All the things that he went through. Paul, all the things that he learned, that he suffered. And we see them all in the book of Acts and in 2 Corinthians. He understood that, you know, man proposes, God disposes. That there could certainly be things that would happen to him. Good things where he needed to attend more to uh, growing churches or bad things, things that were, were the enemies were trying to do to stop his ministry. So he knew he could be delayed. It didn't change the facts on the ground, however. Timothy needed to hear from Paul right away. As we've already seen, the church was really sick. We saw that false teaching contributed very much. The, con- the conduct, the behavior of some was, it was showing that their conscience had been defiled. And that, in turn, des- destroys their faith, the content of what they believe. And so there were big problems in Ephesus. They needed to be attended to before Paul could even come back, if he came back. And so that's why Paul realized he had to put these instructions in writing to Timothy so that he could get right on the work that he needed to do to fix, to bring, to restore to health this congregation. These, these churches, actually plural, in Ephesus. There was an exact course of action that Paul, in his wisdom, knew Paul, that Timothy needed to take right away. 
And that's what we have in the letter of 1 Timothy. As we've seen, there are many, many instructions. But in verse 15, Paul sums it all up. Each saint needed to know how to conduct himself in the household of God, the church. In other words, the instructions, we've already seen this, they're directed towards each individual, whatever their situation is. Maybe they were a leader in the church. Maybe they were a woman serving in the church. Maybe they were an elder or a deacon. Maybe they were men that needed to understand their role in the, in the worship services. Or women who needed to understand their role. And so he's, he's teaching Timothy to instruct the congregation how they have to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church, which, by the way, is people and not a building. How they should conduct themselves among themselves, in the assembly, gathered to worship the Lord, gathered to build one another up, gathered to learn about God's word, and to have the heresy and the false teaching combated in the same way. So that's what he was doing. He taught, again, how a man, remember going back to chapter 2 now, how a man should conduct himself, leading prayers and so forth, how a lady ought to conduct herself to be silent and to understand what her role is in and outside the church, An elder, the qualifications, many had to do with conduct. The same with the deacons, the same with a lady who had a position of service in the church. How one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. With all this focus that Paul is putting on the behavior of the members of the congregation, one has to ask the question, Why does that matter so much? Why does their behavior when they gather together matter so much? And now we're going to see this morning that he's going to tell them why. He's really going to, again, raise the profile of what they're doing in the congregation, the real meaning of it, that they missed, that they needed to keep in mind, to keep firmly in front of them every time they gathered together to worship the Lord. That's why. Well, Well, he tells him in verse 15 three things. Right, I'm going to go through this uh, rather quickly, but you can see it all in front of you. The first thing that he wanted them to understand was that the assembly is the household, the household of God. He's already talked about the elders needing to have skills of a father in overseeing things. He'll later talk about the men and the women, the, young, the, the, the older men, the older women, the younger men, the younger women, and how Timothy is to see them as family, as a father, as a mother as a sister, as a brother. Very important for them to understand that they were God's extended family, which is the church of the living God. They needed to understand that their church didn't belong to the rich people, didn't belong to the leaders. It belonged to God. And he's a living God. He was living among them, in them. Remember, the Holy Spirit dwells in the church. And again, that should raise the pro- that should make you understand the, the reverence that we ought to have when we gather together, when we understand the living God is in us, is inside us. The Holy Spirit dwells in the church. And then third, that church is the pillar and support of the truth. If the truth is going to survive, it's going to be the churches that protect it and guard it so that it does. You know, that it's a saying, and it's true that. The church is always one generation away from extinction. By the way, it'll never go extinct. So sometimes I'm not sure that's the best way to put it. Because God assures that, remember Jesus said, even the gates of hell aren't going to prevail against my my assemblies, my churches. So it's going to survive. However, we still have a role. We still need to understand the importance of it. We need to understand that this is the place where people can go to hear God's truth. And that, again, should raise the profile, the awareness, the understanding. That's why my behavior matters so much. It's so that we can function well as the guarding and the preaching of God's word. And also that those on the outside, the unbelievers, would come and they would see a place of love and kindness and order and humility, which would be attractive to them, where they would tell them, you're in the right place, the people. All right, so that's the third reason. And he puts it in a very particular way. He calls the church, the body of Christ, the members of the congregation, the pillar and support of the truth. You know, people have a lot of ideas about what, how, what churches should do. 
And, and they think that there are certain activities that the church should be involved in. That's very much a part of the church right now in the United States, right? Um, they think that the church has to do certain kind of social things in order to keep the members happy and all those kind of things. Entertainment, um, one-stop shopping, you know, here's your coffee, here's your ballot and all that stuff. But that's really got, that is not the essential function of the church. There is one thing that is the essential, must be there, function of the church, and it's right here in verse 15. Our function. God has organized and put us together for one overriding purpose, which is to be strong and steadfast in guarding and proclaiming the truth, the word of God, the gospel. And what does that tell us? It tells us that, how do you, they ask us, how do you get strong? The answer is by hearing, believing, and living according to God's word. That's, it isn't just you wake up one day and by a miracle, God has made you strong and steadfast. It just doesn't work that way. And of course, the theme here, and we're going to see this today, is that God has given these opportunities. He has sort of connected the believers into his grand plan of salvation in a really important ways. The most important is the word of God being protected, being taught, the gospel being preached. See, we're involved in God's work. It's a privilege. And now, so we ought to get strong in that. If somebody's going to compete in the Olympics, you can be, most of them, and any of them that make the Olympics, have worked out hard for a long time in order to have their bodies in great shape. Well, since we are to be the strength and protection of the truth, we have to do the same thing. Only it's not our bodies, it's our, it's our hearts, our souls. We have, those have to be strengthened and made steadfast by holding firm to the word of God. And therefore, the church preaches the word, proclaims the gospel. All right. Now, one place where this is really pointed out is in 2 Timothy. I'll have it on the, on the board. I have a couple of scriptures on the board today so that we can um, move through. There's a lot of material today. I'll warn you ahead of time. And there's several scriptures that are really fantastic in supporting what Timothy is learning from Paul here. But in 2 Timothy, the second letter, in the first chapter, verse 14, Paul writes, guard, protect, be the strength, be the bulwark, be the, be the protection through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. There he's emphasizing again, this is a living God church, the Holy Spirit dwelling. But guard, protect, strengthen yourself to hold strong to what? The treasure which has been entrusted to you. And that is not the bank account of the church. That is the, the provision of the mysteries of God's word, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Guard it. The Holy Spirit gives you a power source for that. The Holy Spirit makes these things that are in God's word understandable. It shows you and what, what it is that's the true gospel and that it ought to be protected and nurtured. That's the treasure. We are to guard it. It's been entrusted to us for the, for the benefit of others, both in the world, in the church, and in the future generations. Because ultimately that treasure is not actually a book. It's not actually um, money. It's, what it really is, is Jesus Christ himself. See, and that's what we're going to see today. That, that, of course, we honor and revere the word of God, but why? It's because it, it is the complete revelation of the person of God's son from start to finish. That ultimately is who we're guarding that is in that way. That's ultimately who we're revering. It's the person. That's the mystery that he's going to talk about in just a minute. The treasure is a person. The mystery concerns this person, our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 16 now. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh, this is all Christ. He who was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Verse 16 begins with the phrase, by common confession. What this is really saying is that all believers can agree on this essential, that the mystery of godliness that he's laying out here is profound. He's saying that this is a commonly agreed upon, that everyone who comes to these lyrics, these stanzas as it were, realizes that what's here is profound formerly hidden truth about the Lord Jesus Christ. And all who, all who believe, 
all who orient to God's word agree with that. Now he then says, great is the mystery of godliness. This mystery of godliness is great. Well, what's a mystery? We've seen this recently because he talked about that in connection with the duties of a deacon. But here, I want to give you the definition again. A mystery is a fact. It's knowledge. It's information. It's understanding. But a fact that was hidden from everybody. Eye had not seen. Ear had not heard. Nor had it ever entered into the heart of man. The things that now God has revealed. Has revealed now that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. Ascended into heaven. At the right hand of the Father. And Jesus said when that happens the Holy Spirit will come down. And will indwell believers in the church. And then we're ready for these mysteries to be revealed. And they're primarily revealed in the epistles of Paul. Because one of the great, we'll see this, but one of the great aspects of this very mystery that we're seeing here is the fact that Christ's death on the cross is for everybody. Coming from a frame of mind in the Old Testament where God was working solely through the nation of Israel. Okay, Now he's declaring that this death of my son on the cross and his resurrection is, the, is, the, is for everybody in every nation of the world. All right, so these are some of the mysteries, but he lays out mysteries about Jesus Christ, about God's Son, that were hidden from everybody. You know, the prophets, they were were saying things about what would happen in the future. They were dying to know what they were, but they didn't. They understood it was going to be revealed later, and we're the later. So these were things that were hidden until God revealed these things. It's chosen his timing to reveal them. Godliness, notice here, he says, great is the mystery of godliness. Godliness. This word very simply means a quality that's ascribed to God. Something about God, different things. Usually, though, godliness in the Bible, and by the way, it is found in the, in the letters to, to, to Timothy and Titus, and it's found in Peter's writings, Second Peter. And that's pretty much it, this particular word. It usually refers to teaching or behavior. Godly teaching, all right? Godly behavior. Now, what makes it godly? Two things. It's approved by God. The teaching, a godly teaching is a teaching approved by God, given by God. And it also reflects his character. And if that, that is true for teaching, it's also true for behavior. We see that word godliness, godly behavior, And sometimes it's kind of a tough word to get in. And what does it exactly mean? Very simply, it means behavior that's approved by God. Behavior that God lays out for us in his word. Behavior that reflects his character. Now you have to say, well, why would that be a mystery? Why would that? And the answer is, is because there were things about Jesus Christ that once they were revealed would, would, would really propel men to live a certain way that was not laid out until people understood these mysteries about Christ. So that's what we have in a nutshell today. We have the fact that Jesus Christ was revealed at a point in time, and then the things about him were revealed as well, many of them later after he was seated at the right hand of the Father. And those are the mysteries. Of course, they're godly because they're talking about the Son of God. They're godly because they're talking about God's plan to save the human race, which wasn't really understood, again, until after Jesus Christ rose from the dead, was seated at the right hand of the Father. Then it began to be revealed what the the mystery was really all about concerning Christ and, and the gospel. So it also reflects his character. And what we're going to see here is a revelation of the character of God, the heart of God, the genius of God, the mercy of God, all in his plan for salvation, all revealed through the person of Jesus Christ. In other words, this mystery is also the mystery that that from which true godliness, our godliness, how we live, springs forth out of the mysteries about Christ. Well, what specifically, then, is this great mystery? I'd like you to turn to Romans. Hold your place, as we do, in 1 Timothy 3. But please go to Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16, the last chapter of the book of Romans. Pretty much the last few verses. So Romans 16, all right? If you've come to 1 Corinthians, just back up a little. 
And verse 25, Romans chapter 16, verse 25. What's this great mystery? Well, this is a question that the word of God answers. Again, in the writings of Paul. Romans 16, 25. He's he's completing his his letter to the Romans. He's He's already described incredible mysteries in all of that book. Mysteries about Christ's death. Mysteries about the fact that we are freed from the sin, freed from the law, about eternal security, about God's amazing, mysterious plan for the Jewish people, how then that ought to run into the behavior of us. And then at the very end, he says this, Now to him, God the Father, who is able to establish you according to, notice, my gospel, my gospel, the things that have been hidden, that have been revealed to the Lord, by the Lord, to the, to the least of all saints, the chief of sinners. But it was entrusted to him. Guard the treasure that's been entrusted to you, Timothy. Well, that's because it was first entrusted to Paul. Now to him who was able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to what? The revelation of the mystery that's been kept secret for long ages past. What is it? Well, it's according to his gospel and the preaching about Jesus Christ. Therein lies the mystery that was hidden until now when it's been revealed. Again, now him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested. That is a great definition of what the mystery means. What is it? Well, it's something revealed that had been hidden. For ages past, kept secret, but now is manifested. Now, actually in the writings of Paul. And by the scriptures, the prophets, okay, this is, the, this is how he also establishes them. According to the commandments of the eternal God, which has noticed this, here's part of the mystery, has been made known to all the nations, leading to the obedience of faith. In other words, the mystery has to do with the gospel, the preaching about Jesus Christ, and about the fact that this is being made known to all the nations, Jew and Gentile alike, leading to the obedience of faith. By the way, this is a great um, parallel passage to the hymn that we're, we are studying right now in chapter, in chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, verse 16. Again, the gospel, the preaching of Christ, the mystery being revealed, manifested now, the scriptures, the prophets, the, the commandment of the eternal God, all things we can learn from, all right? And we do that. We go back to Isaiah and we see Christ there, for example. Has been made known to all the nations. The gospel preached in the nations, believed on in the world, leading to the obedience of faith. The objective is for people all over the world to believe this mystery, the gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. Okay, back to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. The mystery. By common confession. 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16. So again, what is the mystery? Really simple. The most profound things in God's word are the simplest ones. We're going to see one in just a moment. God, the Son of God, revealed in human flesh. It's so simple to say, but so profound. At the same time, this is, this, is an, this is an incredible opening up of the heart of God. That his son would, as it were, condescend to becoming human. The creator taking on the form of the creature. That's a great mystery. It shows you something amazing about God that had never been seen until Jesus Christ. And by the way, some of this was evident to some when he walked, but not to most. Most of them didn't perceive that he's God in the flesh, but then revealed afterwards in the scriptures. All right. So, that's the mystery. God's plan of salvation, the gospel, through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh, was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, Proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Notice that it's a very simple 
but a rhythmic, actually a poetic, and it's even more in the, in the Greek. The way it sounds in the Greek makes it clear that this is a, this is a hymn. It sounds, uh, anyway, I don't want to get into all that. If I started reading from the Greek, two problems, one that you don't, not used to hearing the Greek. Number two, I'm not really great at pronouncing it. All right, so, but take my word. On this particular one, I did go back and I took, listened to an expert in Greek, Koine Greek, and listened to him and then her, another one, uh, say it. It's really a beautiful, poetic-sounding passage. In any event, all these things about Christ, okay, revealed in the flesh, vindicated in the Spirit, seen, by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. The mystery, it's revealed right here in this profound hymn about Jesus Christ. The preaching of Jesus Christ is here. The mysteries associated with him. It's a magnificent hymn. It's really, a, it's a celebration of the glories of Jesus Christ. Things hidden from the ages and now revealed in God's perfect time unfathomable riches now revealed. That's what this is all about. That's the mystery. Each and every line in verse 16 reveals something else astounding about Christ. And we're going to walk through that one line at a time. And as you do, see it all opening up. See this revelation telling you something amazing about Jesus Christ, God's Son. The mystery. All right, the first one, revealed in the flesh. Revealed in the flesh. Please turn to John chapter 1, verse 14. God's Son, who existed from all of eternity, at the right time, was revealed, manifested, shown in the flesh. John chapter 1, verse 14. This is a profound mystery. We, 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 we know... We read, we even understand at some level, but really, we have to admit that we really don't understand everything about it, that only by what is revealed in God's Word and then in our hearts by the Holy Spirit allows us to grasp what's here. It's profound. Again, think about it. There was a time before creation where it was just God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And then they, in, in the right timing for them, created the heavens and the earth, the angels, everything on the earth, and then man, humans. Humans was, were God's creation. Yes, the crowning creation, but nevertheless, they came from the hand of God. And so, you had, and in the Old Testament, there was that understanding. Here we are on earth, there's God in the heavens, And in one particular place, in the Holy of Holies in the temple, he revealed himself. As God, though, still invisible. But now we find, when we turn the pages to the New Testament, we see something. And we see the fact that God's Son has now taken on human flesh. As it were, the Creator took on the flesh of the created. That's a profound mystery. It was seen by angels. It was amazing to them. Though we have gotten used to the phrase. We shouldn't. We should understand that there's something amazing about God that he would do this, that this would be his plan, that his son would take on human flesh and be among us. And he'd be humbled in every possible way. Look at John chapter 1, verse 14. And the word, pre-existent son of God, from all eternity, became flesh at the right time in Bethlehem born of a virgin. He became flesh and he dwelt among us. He was here. Never before had God dwelt among his creatures like this. Never before had anybody seen God um, manifested in flesh. This was amazing. Again, the angels had never seen it and they were in awe of it. And they understood as God's plan was revealing itself, they, they knew, all right, so did the humans, they knew that there would be a way in which God would provide the Savior, the Lamb, but they didn't know how, they didn't know when, but now we know how, that God's Son Himself would take on human flesh. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. They saw his glory, but it wasn't splendor as we would normally think of it. It wasn't um, the, the splendor of Rome, right? Or even today, the Vatican. 
That wasn't, that wasn't where his glory was. That's not how it was revealed. He grew up in a very, very impoverished situation. He was born in a stable. He, he took on a very common profession that his father had done in carpentry. He certainly wasn't um, displaying himself as a king in all his grandeur, according to the human. But according to the Spirit guiding some, they saw his glory in what? In grace and in truth. That's the glory right there. Grace, God's heartbeat that had been there, but had been never revealed in its fullness until Christ. And then the truth, the gospel. God's son took the form of a servant. He lived among the lost, lost sinners. He humbled himself in every possible way. God from all eternity, now in a human body. And the Bible says the world took no notice of him. Think of it. God was here in human flesh, walking among them. They didn't notice. They didn't even notice. Why? Because they, they looked on things on the outside, and we do the same, but they saw a common man from a place called Galilee, but nothing good comes from Nazareth. And he was, he was also born in a stable. Everything that, humanly speaking, would, would say, this can't possibly be God in the flesh, was. Why? Because he condescended and he became humble in order to fulfill the amazing plan and destiny that God had to save the human race. And in this amazing humility of God to take on the flesh of his creatures, to be among the least of them in terms of his situation in life, to be treated, mistreated again and again, and yet he even stooped down further further humbling himself for the purpose of saving us. He became, the Bible says, he became as a worm. So he went from God from all eternity to human flesh to, to a common man to actually reduce to a worm, the God, God's word says, when he was on the cross. Why? Because he would be crushed for our iniquities. That was the thing that, that people had never put together. That yes, we understood there would be a Messiah someday. There would be someone who would come in the line of David. The Jews knew this from the ones who were paying attention. They also understood that there would be the Lamb of God. They never put it together. They never, this is one and the same person. And as a matter of fact, this person is God, now taking on human flesh. And then he, then he condescended again, down, 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 finally to death on a cross, a cruel death where he was crushed. All for our sins. You see, that's the kind of thing that man took no notice of. They, they scoffed at him when he was on the cross. They said, how can this possibly be the Son of God? If you're the Son of God, why don't you just come on down off the cross now and we'll all believe in you. That was their attitude. But the angels saw something different. God saw something different. We see something different through the, through the lens of God's word now. What did we see? We see that why he was there. This was all part of God's plan. That he, would be, that he would be taking on the form, crushed for our iniquities, but accomplishing the most amazing thing, which was to have creatures who were dead in sin, and then through the sacrifice of God's Son in the flesh, would have an opportunity to believe in Him for eternal salvation. He took on our sins so that we could believe and be declared righteous. See that? He came down so that we go up. In a simple way of putting at it. All right, Philippians 2, 5 says this in a tremendous way. I'd like you to see that now. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Amazing. God revealed in the flesh. Look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Let this mind... I'm reading the King James. Because it's, it's got it right in places where the New American Standard just doesn't get it. All right, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. By the way, that's a great summary of, of what's, being, what's being presented in our, in our passage today. He's saying, I want you to see how Christ thought of things. His attitude towards people. And then I want you to have the same one. That your conduct... The way it's godly is when it agrees with how Christ thinks, his attitude towards people. Again, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. What's that? Who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. 
that's where the new, the new American standard misses it. He's basically saying he's God, he knows it. He could have been present, presented, presenting himself as equal to God, but he didn't. What did he do instead? He made himself of no reputation. No reputation. Oh, that's the carpenter's son. Didn't we walk around with him? Who does he think he is? His brother said, we're not believing in him. We know who he was, right? A common man, a man of no reputation. And even beyond that, he took upon him the form of a servant. Think about it. The almighty God, the living God, all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere present, took on the form of a servant. That's incredible. That's mind-blowing. That is something that never would have entered into the heart of man. You can guarantee it. They never would have said, the way that God is going to save us is because he's going to take on human flesh and he's going to be our servant for three and a half years. And then he's going to die. If you read, by the way, the the mythology of the Greeks, which if you think about that time, that would probably be the pagan equivalent of how they thought about God. And it was always magnificent, up on the mountain, um, revealing himself in power and and all of that. But no. The real God took on the form of a servant, and then he was made in the likeness of men. God in the flesh. Verse 8. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself further. How? By becoming obedient to the plan of his father, which would have him going to die the death of the cross. That's what God in the flesh is really saying. It's saying something amazing about God and his love, and his grace, and his mercy. It's a great mystery of godliness. It's incredible when you stop to think about it. 2 Corinthians 5.21, I put that up here today too, says it this way. 2 Corinthians 5.21, up on the screen right now. He made him, Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. That's the, that's the amazing part of God taking on flesh. That he actually took on all of our sins on the cross. He was sinless. He was perfect. By the way, that, he was righteous. That's why he'll be vindicated. We'll see that in a minute. And yet he took on our sins. He became a sin offering on our behalf. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's amazing. It's a mystery. Never, No one would have come up with this plan other than God. And that leads us to the next stanza in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Was vindicated in the Spirit. Was vindicated in the Spirit. Proven to be who He says He was. Seen in all of, his, all of who He really is. Who did it? The Spirit did. The Spirit vindicated Christ. Justified Him in the eyes of the creation. Didn't have to justify Him before God. But the creation thought little of Him. They saw him die on the cross, and they thought, well, that's it. You know, who is this man? We don't know who he was. He was just around for three and a half years. He said some amazing things, but then he died. That would be an unvindicated Savior. But that's not the end of the story, is it? No, the Spirit vindicated him. In other words, he testified of his deity. Remember, his deity was hidden. The Spirit testified of it. The Spirit vindicated, backed up, said, this is God's Son, and also His righteousness. He's sinless. We just saw that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. I'd like you to turn to Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Sticking a little today. I want you to see this. I want you to see at the very beginning of the book of Romans how, how we see what it means that the Spirit vindicated Christ. We also see some great parallel information to our passage today, which I'll point out as we go through this. Romans 1.1. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, privileged to be called his slave, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, God the Son, born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power. How? By the resurrection from the dead. This was how the Spirit vindicated Christ. He was declared the Son of God. That's His vindication. With power. See, He came and He was weak. He became the lowest of the low. A worm on the cross. But in His resurrection, 
All his glory, all his power was revealed. And now everyone could see, who had eyes to see, this is really the Son of God. Like the centurion could see. When at the death of Jesus Christ, there was a great earthquake and everything was dark. And then after he rose from the dead, the the other dead came and were alive and shown themselves to Jerusalem. In other words, all of creation already knew, right? When he was born, the star was, was brought where it needed to be. The sun was eclipsed when he died. And now in his resurrection, mindless, foolish human beings saw it too. Declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to who? The Spirit of holiness. Jesus Christ our Lord. The Spirit knows the deep things of God. That's another great um, description of the mystery of godliness. The deep things of God. And so he revealed that God's Son, Jesus Christ, is the Son of God. He declared that to everybody. God the Father was involved. He vindicated his Son as well by raising him from the dead. Again, when you see the beginning of what it meant to be in flesh, understand that that led to the cross, the depths of that, and then you understand that he was raised from the dead, you can kind of see much more clearly now how that was a vindication of Jesus Christ, that it put, as it were, God's stamp of approval, but only, not only that, but the revelation to all that he is in fact God in the flesh. Seen by angels. Go back, to, please, now to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Verse 16. Great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, revealed in the flesh so that he could die, vindicated by the spirit by his resurrection, and now notice, seen by angels. Seen by angels. God showed himself to angels in the person of Christ. Now what does that mean? Well, it means that God was in the creature's flesh, and now angels could see him. See, for us to see an angel is a, is a real wonder, wouldn't it be? If we saw an angel today, wouldn't that be a wondrous thing? Wouldn't we say, wow, that's great. That's a mystery, right? But here's the thing. For an angel to see God become man is a far greater wonder. That was the thing that blew them away, that God would become man. That, he, that Jesus Christ would be seen by angels, God in the flesh. Christ showed himself to the angels. By, by, and we know that's for us too, that Jesus Christ is the flashing forth of God. What does that mean? God made visible. On the one hand, yes, he took on the form of a, flesh, of, of a man, a servant. On the other hand, he also revealed who God was. For the first time, God was in human flesh, where he could be seen, observed, the angels could understand that, that this was God's way of saving man. The angels were blown away by the fact that God would do this, that he would take on flesh. Please turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. 1 Peter 1, 10. The angels, were, the angels observed. He was manifested. Jesus Christ revealed himself to the angels. It was a, it was a, it was a wonder for them to see this. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. I know I'm bouncing around a little today, but there's so much in the scriptures that we, that we really need to bring in when we study this great hymn in chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, verse 16. But anyway, 1 Peter chapter 10, chapter 1, there is no chapter 10. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries. They really, really wanted to know. They sought to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them, they prophesied by the means of the Spirit, okay? They, they wanted to know what person, what time, the Spirit of Christ who was within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ, of the Messiah, and the glories to follow. But it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves. That this revelation would not be for them, but for who? You, Christians, members of the body of Christ. It was revealed to them, the prophets, who prophesied of grace, of the glories and the sufferings of Christ. It was, not, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, 
in these things which now have been announced to you. Revelation hidden, revelation announced. Through those who preach the gospel, the mystery of the gospel, things announced for the first time to people. Preach the gospel to you by that same Holy Spirit sent from heaven. But notice the last part. Things into which angels long to look. Angels long to look at what it is that's been revealed to us. And so they, they look actually now to the church to have God's glories broadcast to them. But the real mystery of all mysteries is that what? God would be in the flesh, die for the sins of the world, be vindicated by the Spirit when he was raised from the dead, and now he's seen as such by the angels. More mystery. More mystery. Proclaimed among the nations. That's the next line, as it were, in this great hymn. Proclaimed among the nations. By the way, the word nations is really Gentiles. Gentiles. Proclaimed among the Gentile nations. That's another mystery. They understood that the Messiah was the, was the Jewish Messiah. That he would be the one that would bring true Israel into the promised land. That much they understood. But they didn't understand, A, that he would die for the sins of the whole world. And then his message would be broadcast to all the nations. Christ is the Savior of all men. Gentiles as well as Jews. The same God who's the God of the circumcision of the Jews is the same God for the uncircumcision, the Gentiles. Now these Gentiles, it's hard for us to see now when we see the church is really dominated by Gentiles, but at the time, the Gentiles had been excluded from the covenants with Israel. There was God working with Israel, and then there was everybody else and all the nations excluded from that. All right. That had been the way it was. But now they've been brought near by who? The blood of Christ. His his death has now brought the whole human race. All nations are now together in the sense of of should be worshipping, are benefited from the Savior who is the Savior of all men. And not only that, but they were given Paul as their special apostle. Please turn to Ephesians chapter 3 verse 4. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 4. Remember, we're studying the great mystery. The great mystery. The mystery now has to do also with the Gentiles. These were all things that were never revealed. Remember that it wasn't really clear at all that the message of the gospel was supposed to go to the Gentile nations. Clearly, the early church didn't think so. In fact, Peter didn't think so. Remember, he had that great vision of the, of the um, I'm going to call it a curtain. It's not a curtain. But coming down and having all of the things that the Jews couldn't eat on it. And then the Lord said, eat. And he's saying, no, I could never do that. I'm a Jewish person. And he said, no, eat. I'm going to show you why. Why was because he was going to be sent to a Gentile family. So Peter didn't think that that was going to happen. He didn't think that the message that he had was supposed to go to the Gentiles. He thought it was only supposed to go to the Jews. And it really wasn't until Paul that it became obvious that, yes, there would be an apostle that would go out into the Gentile world. He had a bit of a struggle with the elders in Jerusalem and the apostles about this. They were, they were kind of begrudgingly going along with it, not really sure. What's this Paul up to? Does he know what he's doing? And they finally, when he talked about the fruit, then they realized, wow, the Gentiles are a part of this. So Paul is the one who is given as the special apostle to the Gentiles. We see that here in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 4. Again, the mystery, the mystery, the mystery. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. Paul had insights given to him by the Lord about the mystery of who Jesus Christ is. Again, a great definition again, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men. Nobody knew it. But now has been revealed by his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. And then he says, this is the specific mystery here. That the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body. And fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus. Through this gospel which is being preached. Proclaim among the nations. And then believed on in the world. This means that there were hearts that heard. 
when Paul went out to the different places, to Galatia, to Ephesus, to Philippi, to Thessalonica, to Corinth, and wrote to... There were people in every one of those locations who heard this great mystery, who had the gospel proclaimed to them. And many times the Gentiles received it gladly. There There were Jewish people, some who believed, and then many who wanted to destroy Paul's ministry. On the other hand, the Gentiles... Who, who had never heard anything like this, responded in many cases with joy. And so there were people who believed this. Now, it's, a, it's an amazing thing to hear. That you mean we're saved by the blood of the cross? That this man dying on a Roman cross, that was, the, that was a death sentence for the common criminals? This one is God's son? And his blood was for me? It was a mystery. Oh, now, how could they do, how could they believe it? One way. The power of the word of the cross. And, of course, the Holy Spirit mentoring them. So, in other words, another great miracle was that the Gentiles would hear and believe. And they did. To be specific, Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body. Fellow partakers of the promise of eternal life through the gospel. Believed on in the world. By the way, this was God's great objective. Why did he have his son take on human flesh? Why did he die? Why was, how was he vindicated through his resurrection? Why was he seen by the saints? Why, by the angels? Why would his message now be proclaimed to the whole world, to nations? The answer is right simple. So that there would be those who believe. That was his objective. That was his end game. God's great desire in sacrificing his son was that many sons and daughters would be made and then brought to glory. Isn't that something? God's son descended from glory and then died And then rose again so that there would be many sons and daughters who would hear that message and believe and be made God's adopted children and one day be brought to glory with Christ up there. It's an amazing story when we step back. And that's what verse 16 allows us to do. It allows us to step back and hear in a rhythmic, poetic way this great story of how God sent his son. That's why God's son appeared in human flesh. Look at 1 Timothy 4.10 as we wrap up. 1 Timothy 4.10. Who was this one who died on the cross? Who was this one who, who, yes, was the Jewish Messiah, though they didn't recognize it by and large? Who was this one that God took up in glory? Who was this one who, who, whose message would be preached to all the Gentile world. First Timothy 4.10. For it is for this we, Paul and Timothy, labor and strive because we have fixed our hope, there it is again, the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially believers. He was believed on in the world. The world is all the people that needed to believe in Christ to be saved. And then there were some who did. But Jesus Christ is the Savior for all men. By the way, unbelievers as well as believers. Because he says what? Especially of believers. He's not just the Savior for believers. He's for all members of the human race. And then taken up in glory. His work was finished. Now we're at this point in time. His work was finished. The message has gone out. There are those who believe. And even though chronologically... This was not, didn't come in this order in terms of the wonder of it all. The last thing that he wants us to see is that Jesus was taken up in glory. That he is, he is glorified now. That God the Father exalted him. Please go to Luke chapter 20. I'm bouncing around. Luke chapter 24, verse 51. Yeah, and I hope you are either taking notes or go on the website when we're done because all the slides will be there. You can see once again the statements in this message as well as the passages that we've gone to because I know I'm moving along here at the end but please look at Luke chapter 24 verse 51 taken up in glory his work is finished he now is ascending into heaven picture it in unspeakable glory born in a mere stable although witnessed by the angels die on a Roman cross But angels were waiting at his tomb for him to rise. He rose from the dead. His message is going out to the world. People are believing. And he is taken up in glory. And we see that in Luke 24, 51. While he was blessing his disciples, 
he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. Another miracle, an amazing thing. That God's, that God's son in the, in, the, in the body of a man would then be taken up and, made, and glorified before the angels seated at the right hand of the Father. Or as it says in Philippians 2.9, on the, on the slides today, Philippians 2.9, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, taken up in glory, down to the lowest of the lows, up to the highest of the highs, God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. He was, he was below every name as a criminal on a cross, but now he's above every name. Because why? He's ascended into heaven. He's glorified. He's exalted by God the Father. This is the story. This is the story of our so great salvation. It's all here in verse 16 of chapter 3. How a wretched race was visited from God on high in his one and only Son in the flesh. It's a mystery. But it's a mystery of what? Godliness. Let's go back. Mystery of godliness. Remember, godliness has to do, with, in the human race anyway, with, with teaching and behavior that is approved by God and, and, and reflects his character. So now it's coming back now. He's coming down. He's about to go into chapter 4 when he's going to get back to the problems in the church and the other things that, that they needed to be instructed about. But we need to understand how that happens. This is a link now. See, we've seen that God... Was, uh, in, was, it, was in the Lord Jesus Christ manifested in the flesh, not only to be a ransom for our souls, right? He rescued us from sin, but he also making us pure. He's also making us free. But to be a precedent for our lives. By the way, I put this, this person up, Joseph Hall. I don't usually do this, but he, he used to write these, um, these meditations. And they're fantastic. I didn't realize, you know, you know, in the marketing of the church today, there's a lot of books that come out. There's one coming out, I, I belong to a Christian, I don't belong, yeah, I'm a member, a Christian book. And they're always coming out with these new catalogs, and it's always the latest and the greatest book. I got some advice for you. Don't worry about those books. If you want to read something, go back. Go back 300 years and find out the kind of writing and read it that was being done back then. It'll blow you, it blew me away. It was a meditation. It was just him considering all the things that are mysteries and how they're all brought out in the person of Christ. Anyway, his name is Joseph Hall. He was in the uh, late 1500s, early, uh, mid-1600s, a long, long time ago, over 300 years ago. Our Lord was manifested in the flesh, not only to be a ransom for our souls, but also be a precedent for our lives. And um, you don't have to turn there. I'm going to close this by reading it. 2 Corinthians 5.14 For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all. All, therefore, died. And he died for all. Why? So that they who live, us, might no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Great is the mystery of godliness. All right, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you today. For blessing us with your word, we thank you, Father, that we are able to, with Paul and with Timothy, just stop and just have a time of reflection and meditation on the amazing, miraculous, mysterious story of our salvation in Christ. We ask now, Father, that we would take that time, slow down every once in a while, get, get in a place of, of rest, And think again and again about how marvelous you are and how that was exhibited in your son and his life and death and resurrection and ascension. And in the mind of Christ that you've shared now in the mysteries revealed, particularly in the letters of Paul. In other words, help us to just pull ourselves out of the everyday, pull ourselves out of our own thoughts, and then spend some time with the glories of Christ. We ask this all in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. By the power of the Spirit. Amen. All right, we always have Skype Bible study on Thursday at 6 30. Many of you attend, and I just encourage you to keep doing that. Um, if you need information on how to join, it's on our website. On the front page, you'll see 
an announcement every week. We pray at that time, so please give us your prayer requests. If you have any questions about the message today, you can always email me. That's pastor at lbible.org. All right, let's close one more time. Father, we thank you that Jesus Christ died for our sins, was buried, and you raised him from the dead on the third day so that whoever believes in your son will never perish but have eternal life. We know that this is, we see now how great a mystery this really is and the power of this word, this gospel to save. Father, help us to guard this truth and proclaim it, both as a church, as a body, and as you present to us individuals that we can witness to in our daily lives. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, by the power of the Spirit. Amen. All right, you're dismissed now. You can go and enjoy your day. Hopefully you have a chance to reflect once again on uh, the mystery that's here in verse 16. Go back to it. Go back to it again and again. All right, bye-bye.